So my name is Monica. I identify as an alcoholic, but as you'll hear in my story, I could identify as half a dozen things. So just to keep it simple, I identify as an alcoholic in AA, a cocaine addict in CA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the things that, that makes my story what it is, is that my, my life brackets certain decades almost precisely. So I was born in 1951 and I'm 71 years old now. I thought I was really, really old when I got sober in 1986, but I was only 34 and a half and I was a kid, but I felt like my life was about over. It, it, was, uh, it was pitiful. But my childhood was in the 50s. My teenage years were in the 60s. My 20s were in the 70s, et cetera, et cetera. And each of those decades had a certain flavor to it. My, it, it's weird to think with all the stuff going on in the world that I was born about six years after they liberated the concentration camps in Germany. I mean, history's not that long ago, you know? And it's weird to see it kind of uh, repeating. So my, one of the things that's been threaded through my sobriety is, is learning how generational pain can help create how it is that we think about the world and how I think about the world has so much to do with all my addiction issues. My father was born in 1920 something and he was born into an Irish Catholic family of four sons who, a family that was dominated by a very, um, um, a very forceful father personality and a kind of a disappearing mother. I never really knew my uh, paternal grandmother. She was sort of like a, a non-entity in the family. And my father got patterned with a certain way of having a family. So he went out to look for a young Catholic virgin in a Catholic school, um, a college, and found my mother. Um, and married her because that was what Irish Catholic young men from back east did in those days. What he didn't know at the time was that my mother was mentally ill and was going to be an alcoholic and a drug addict. She didn't know it then either. And it was a bit of a shock to him. He didn't know how to handle this, uh, this different pattern. So he had grown up with you, you, you get married and you court your wife and then you marry her and then as soon as you're married on the first Christmas, you give her an apron and a toaster and she starts popping out kids and you go to church on Sunday and this is, you, you work and the mom raises the kids and this is, this was the life he envisioned. This was the life he grew up with. Um, although I came to learn later in life that his father was a gambler and during the depression, even though they, he always had a job, he very often couldn't pay the rent because he was apparently quite a compulsive gambler. And I also came to learn that on my mother's side of the family, there's a long history of alcoholic German Iowa farmers, corn farmers, um, and some weird sexual stuff going on too. When my great grandfather was bedridden in his old age, he had a couple of um, prostitutes who used to come and visit him. 
And my grandmother would peer through the window trying to see what was going on. And these were things that people didn't talk about. But, and my mother woke up when she was about, I think she was 12 years old and doesn't rem didn't remember anything before she woke up at 12 years old. And in psychiatric work, it turned out that it was quite likely that she was molested by her father and she was rejected by her mother. So there was all this family pain that I was born into in 1951, and I didn't know this. My father was still trying to pattern his life after this um, vision that he had from his childhood. And my mother was trying really, really hard to be a, a good Catholic wife. But she wasn't being courted anymore by this man who had courted her so well when they were dating. And she was in increasing emotional pain. So as my mother tells it, one day she was on her hands and knees washing the kitchen floor, being the good little Catholic wife. And my father and my mother's mother stood over her and started criticizing her work. And she said, that's when the light bulb went on and she thought it doesn't pay to be good. So I'm gonna be bad. And that's when she started drinking and smoking cigarettes and hanging out with girlfriends, drinking beer and living a quite different life. My mother having the disease of alcoholism, her disease progressed fairly quickly and it coupled with her mental illness. Um, my mother, by the way, when she died, she was 20 years sober and had really had really good treatment for her mental illness. And it was, a, it was a beautiful thing to see how somebody can recover from such a load of pain as my mother did. Although she didn't recover perfectly as my sister Susie knows. Um, I was the oldest of four daughters and my mother would periodically disappear. And apparently what I was told, and it's really odd that they would tell a kid this about their mother, but they told me that my mother was living in an abandoned apartment building with some man um, and that she had deserted us. And my grandmother, her mother came to take care of us and she was incapable of taking care of four rambunctious kids. So I kind of had to take care of my grandmother and the kids. I remember my grandmother's approach to trying to get the kids to go to bed or do whatever they needed to do was to cry, which didn't work well. And I felt this huge weight of responsibility. Of course, as a child, I felt responsible for my mother leaving. I must have done something wrong or failed in some way that my mother would leave. But then even worse, when my mother would come back because she periodically disappeared and came back. Sometimes it was off with the guy, I guess. Sometimes it was in a mental hospital. And when she came back, she would either be frightening. She would be frightening in ways. She, she would tell us she was a superhero, like in a comic book, and she wasn't really our mom. And I remember begging her to say, no, no, you. It, you need to be our mom. You need to be my mom. I didn't want her to be some weird superhero. Or she would decide that we needed to get on our knees and pray the rosary every night. She would get uber Catholic for a little while and we'd have to uh, pray the rosary every night. Um, it was terrifying. 
and I didn't realize and dwell into my recovery how terrifying that was. My heart goes out to any child who doesn't have the the, the security of knowing that the, there's some kind of a foundation in their life. Um, it really haunted me through my adulthood. So at one point, my mother was in a mental hospital when I was 12 years old. And she had a Bill Wilson experience, basically. She had a, a, a burning bush experience. And my mom and I used to laugh about it when we were both sober. She would get burning bush experiences and I would get a book to read <laughs> whenever I... I, I, whenever I would uh, pray about, you know, what do I need to do? I get a book, she gets a burning bush. So, and, and I've given up trying to figure out where all this stuff comes from. I don't worry about, you know, what is, I mean, Bill Wilson was on drugs when he had his white light experience. Chances are my mother was, but it worked. She had a psychic change. And I love that part in the book. I, to me personally, my opinion is Bill Wilson mixed it way too much with religion and stuff. But what he did learn that was profound for us as addicts and alcoholics is this psychic change can, can be so useful in us finding that, that little window into recovery. So my mom had a voice come up out of the lawn, as she told it, um, in the mental hospital. She was literally weaving keychains and stuff. I remember we used to visit her. The voice came out of the lawn and said, uh, go to AA. You need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Chances are she heard about AA somewhere. It was lurking around in her subconscious, but to her, it came up out of the lawn, said, go to AA. She did, and my father talked to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist told her that under no circumstances should he allow her to go hang out with these sick alcoholic people. And my mother ended up divorcing my father um, over that and other things, she, she was hot for sobriety. She was hot for sobriety, but she wasn't hot for working much of a program. I remember a lot of uh, running around with sober motorcycle guys from the local Alano Club. It was called The Nest down in the San Fernando Valley um, near Los Angeles. My mother was young and she was quite beautiful and she played. She, she didn't drink or use, but she, she played. And she still wasn't much into, as a mother, she made sure that there was food in the house. She made sure we vacuumed on Saturdays, but our mother never really knew who we were. She was, neither my mother or father was capable of intimacy with a child and really getting to know who we were. We were just the kids and, and, and they dotted the I's and crossed the T's for financial support and a home and all that stuff. But we were kind of on our own emotionally. However, I got dragged to a lot of smoke-filled AA meetings from the age of 12 on. And I clearly remember how hokey it all seemed to me with this weird stuff on the wall and all these people, uh, all the all the uh, pithy little sayings that were posted, and people running around talking about higher power. But in my home, there was no evidence of this dependence on a higher power stuff. There was no evidence of people having any kind of an emotionally healthy life. 
My mother fell in love with a recovering heroin addict. His name was Highland. And very shortly after she divorced my dad, she married this guy. She was madly in love with him. She was much more uh, focused on him than she was on us. I realized in looking back that I got used to being left to my own devices and having the people in my life not focus on me. And I think I've stuck with that pattern through my life. I seem to have chosen partners and friends who will, I can get them to talk to me at length about themselves, but I will very craftily not reveal that much about myself. Uh, it's really been, um, well, it's interesting. Speaking at meetings uh, for me is one of the ways of having to reveal a lot more of myself than I would ordinarily do. I just grew up being very private that way. That was the model that I had. Uh, other people have their concerns and those are important, but what's going on with me is secondary. I'm here to support all the important things of other people. So my mother married this heroin addict and he could not stay clean. He was addicted to heroin, um, prostitutes and gambling. And he would periodically, um, use and I would come home from school and my mother would say we're moving to an apartment right this minute because if your father finds out that Highland is using he'll try to get custody of the children. Now the divorce between my mother and my father had been extremely bitter. This would have been 1963 when it happened the same year Kennedy got assassinated and my mother had this idea in her head that the mother should have the children, even though she wasn't that into the kids. My father was the one who was into the kids, but she fought for custody. And in those days, they tended to give it to the mother. We were interviewed by a social worker during the divorce and we were told that it would be private. And the social worker asked who we wanted to be with. And I wanted to be with my father, but I was afraid that my mother would die if I wasn't there to take care of her. So I told the social worker that I wanted to be with my mother. And then they, in court, they announced that I had said I wanted to be with my mother. And it was very hurtful to my father and was destroyed what little trust I had. Nonetheless, we ended up with my mother, but we would move. I would come home from school. I was going to an all girls Catholic high school by choice because I was a really smart kid and I loved school. And I had gone to a uh, get to know you event at this Catholic high school and the teachers really enjoyed teaching and there were no boys and that was comfortable for me and so I had gone to the school by choice at that point my mother didn't want to have Catholic school but I got a scholarship so she let me go but I'd come home from school with my homework and stuff and she'd say we're moving right now and we'd go stay in and live in an apartment for a month or whatever it took until Highland got sober again. So cumulatively over time with the, with the toxic relationship between my mother and my father, by the way, when they got divorced, the court made them live together for a year before the divorce was final. My father lived in the front of the house. My mother lived in the back. We lived in the middle. And my father would say, tell your mother, blah, blah, blah. And my mother would say, tell your father, blah, blah, blah. 
my point being that from a very early age, I always felt like no matter what was going on in life, the rug was likely to be yanked out from under me at any moment. And that any moment of joy was tainted by the fear that at any moment, the joy was gonna turn into something bad. So there was no firm foundation that I could count on in life. So during my teenage years, there was this back and forth. I graduated from high school, uh, won a scholarship to UCLA. Now, during high school was when I started to smoke pot and drink. And I led kind of a double life. I was this really smart scholarship level student in a Catholic all-girls high school. And on the weekends, I hung out with the local motorcycle group called the Satan Slaves because they were fun and they had, dr they had drugs and they had wine. And I remember when I first smoked pot, it was to get back at a boyfriend who had kind of dumped me. And I didn't get high, but I pretended to get high because I wanted to fit in. But after a while of smoking pot, I eventually truly did get high. And I still remember the relief that I felt. This huge burden of being responsible for everything on the planet, for my poor mother, for my brokenhearted father, for my sisters, for everything. I just felt sheer relief for a while when I was loaded or drinking wine, hanging out with the Satan slaves and laughing. I didn't care about things. And it was such a relief not to care about everything. By the time I graduated from high school, I still was really a weekend pot smoker and drinker. I was perfectly functioning in school, but I was tired. I was tired of performing. I got this scholarship to go to college at UCLA, but the scholarship came with no money because my stepfather, the heroin addict, he was really good at making money. He would buy VA Veterans Administration repossess houses. He would paint them and um, kind of just refurbish them a little bit, turn around and sell them and make a lot of money. Because he made a lot of money, the school didn't want to give me money to go with my scholarship. And I didn't want to live at home anymore. Um, I wanted to use drugs and hang out with men. Hold on, I have a knock on the door. Yeah, we're good. Are you, yeah, you but thanks. Uh, no, we're good. We just got here last night. Okay, thank you. We're down in this hotel in Del Mar while my husband works on a roof at a horse place. Um, so it came with no money. I didn't want to live at home. My, my home life with my mother and this stepdad was so weird. My mother was completely focused on Highland, and when he would get loaded, she would do things like stand over him with a pitcher of ice water and a knife and threaten to cut things off of them if he nodded out. I mean, the drama was insane. My stepfather would tell me things like, you know, if anything ever happened to your mother, maybe you and I could do something, which I, of course, didn't tell my mother about. My family was all about keeping secrets. I more and more wanted to use drugs and drink, but I had to hide it from my mom because she was sober, be embarrassing. Um, I wanted to go hang out with, with my boyfriend. Um, 
So I had, I moved out of my mother's house and tried to get a job and go to school because the scholarship came with no money. My father didn't want to give me money because I was living with a guy. And so I tried working and going to school and I was, I was so lost. I didn't know how to do college. There was no, um, there was no counseling or anything to tell you how to navigate. I had come, come from this little school of 360 girls to a, to a university. I didn't know how to get the classes I needed. In addition to which, the times. So in the late 60s, I graduated high school in 1969. In the late 60s, it felt like the world had gone mad. There were three assassina assassinations right in a row. There was, there was Robert Kennedy, there was Martin Luther King, and there was Malcolm X. Boom, boom, boom. When I was at UCLA and I tried to walk from one class to another, there were protests and there were motorcycle cops and tear gas. And I was trying to navigate my way around these protests. But I also, you were looking at it on TV every night. You were seeing the dead bodies coming home and you were seeing the napalmed kids and all this stuff that was going on. And you start, it, it, was, such a, it was such a disconcerting feeling. Like, what am I doing trying to study my English when the world's coming apart and, and the war's going on? And I felt like I, it just, none of it made sense to me. And there was nobody who could help it make sense. I tried to go to a counselor at UCLA um, to say, you, you know, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. And all that guy heard somehow was that I had trouble parking because I was a freshman and I couldn't get a permit. And he suggested I join the parking committee. I will never forget the most useless counseling I have ever had in my life. So I dropped it. I did the most logical thing. I, first, I tried going on strike. So what some of the students did then was they went on strike for their classes because of the war um, and the professor would let you turn in a paper without going to the classes, but somehow, uh, it, what with staying up all night and using cocaine and smoking and drinking, um, my paper must not have been very good because I got the first F that I ever got in my life. And I said, to heck with the whole thing. And I dropped out of college. So I'm living with my boyfriend in Manhattan Beach. There are drugs everywhere. For all of my 20s, I was much more into drugs than I was into alcohol. Um, drugs worked better and drugs were everywhere. But it was a weird time also to be a young woman. So there was all this free love, supposedly, and hippy dippy stuff. You know, it's, I, I heard on TV the other day, you know, it wasn't until 1973 or four that a woman could get a credit card without her husband signing for it something like that, young women might, they wouldn't realize how different it was to be a young woman in those days. So I'm in my 20s, it's the 70s. It's supposed to be all cool and, and sexually free, but it was a much better deal in my memory for the guys than it was for the women. There was so much a double standard. If you were a girl, you were supposed to put out or you were considered uptight but you also were a slut when you put out. Um, the, most of my boyfriends wanted to have a relationship where I was monogamous and they were fooling around. And I had a pattern of these relationships over the years. 
well into my sobriety of feeling like that somehow that was that was the best I could do was I would I would be focused on some guy and taking care of him in whatever way and he would fool around and it would be hurtful but this was the way it worked I did not have the self-esteem to feel like I deserved anything different um I eventually tried to I I went to Hawaii with a boyfriend in the early 70s and the boyfriend it, it was it was not tropical paradise for me it was I felt rootless. I felt adrift. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had this boyfriend who had a job being a carpenter and I was making his lunches for him and his dinners for him. I fooled around with some food addiction at that time. I would take an entire box of grain crackers and pour cream over them and eat the whole thing and be sick. I never did become a full-blown overeater person but I remember I think the only reason was was because I personally didn't get the same relief from that that I got from the drugs if I had gotten the same relief from that I would have gone down that road I certainly tried it even that early I was no longer getting relief from the drugs but by this time I was addicted I was smoking a lot of pot I was smoking hash I was taking psychedelics when I could get my hands on them, even though I didn't particularly like them. Um, I am a big fan of the possibility of guided psychedelic therapy these days, circling back to that psychic change idea. I really do feel like some of the stuff they're doing with psych psychiatric guided therapy could potentially be a way to achieve that psychic change that some people need to be able to heal. But I was doing unguided stuff with God knows what was in these things I was getting on the street. And a lot of it was really nasty. And I'm probably lucky that it wasn't worse than it was. But I did meet these two women who were living on their own without a boyfriend at the time. And it was my first glimpse at a couple of women who were living their life their way without just going along with what some boyfriend was doing. And it was an illuminating experience for me. But overall, I yearned to try to get some kind of pattern back into my life. So I enrolled in, um, I came back to California. I got a job. I decided I was going to work and save money to go to school. I got back with the boyfriend I'd been with in Hawaii. I was working. I saved all this money. And then I enrolled in uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. But before I came up to go to UCSB, I went to Mexico with my boyfriend. We took a, we hitchhiked down to um, the town in Texas. It's across from Juarez. We went across the border. We took a train to this little coastal town called San Blas. I still remember that train. It was really, really a gross train. But somehow we ended up in this coastal town and we had an argument with the hotel the motel where we had put our things. We're out in the middle of the square in this little Mexican town in the ocean, having an argument with, a, with the owner who was trying to pretend that he didn't speak English, which he did. And these two Americans came up, a guy and a girl, and they got involved in this argument with us. Well, one of them was named Sue. She's passed away, Sue Sales. 
They said, oh, come and stay with us. And we went and stayed in their house and we were smoking a bunch of dope. And then the federales knocked on the door and Sue flushed everything down the toilet. The federales came in somehow. We did not end up in a Mexican jail, but we all hopped in their van and headed for the border. And at some point, one of them said, why don't we get some pot? We're like, are you out of your mind? Let's just get back to the U.S. before we end up in some jail. But Sue Sales told me, she said, if you ever come to Santa Barbara, give me a call. And I did. And I ended up sharing a little place at the bottom of Bath Street in Santa Barbara for $100 a month. We shared the rent three ways, $33.33 each a month. Whenever Sue had a boyfriend, I slept on a piece of foam in the living room. Whenever she had a boyfriend over, I would go, she slept on a bed in the living room. I was on a foam pad and one of the girls had a bedroom in the back. I would go in the kitchen when she had a boyfriend over. And I tried going to school for one semester. I did really well, but I just couldn't see the point. I, I had been so knocked off kilter by all the stuff that happened in the late 60s and early 70s and the way the world seemed to have gone nuts, that it didn't make sense to me to be going to school. It just didn't make sense. And it's one of my regrets that I didn't finish school and become a scientist or something, but I, I, had, I chose a different path. I don't regret it that much because there were a lot of beautiful things about the path I ended up on. But I fell in love with the with what at the time was this kind of artsy music music scene in Santa Barbara. I fell in with a bunch of people who were into Afro-Cuban music and black music, fell in love with it, learned how to play percussion, went down this insanely different road. Um, I had a boyfriend who wanted me to make a case for his saxophone so he could go hiking with it. This was before you had cases to take musical instruments all over the place. Um, he brought a sewing machine. He said, you're a girl, you must know how to sew. And I said, the only thing I ever sewed in my life was a pair of shorts where the legs were different lengths. Didn't know how to sew at all. But I really enjoyed this sort of, he got an industrial sewing machine from a friend and parked it in my living room when we made this case. And it didn't fit his horn because I made the case the same size as the horn. You couldn't get it in there. So I made another one. I ended up with this little business, which was actually a lot of fun during the 70s. Um, I didn't make a lot of money because I spent half the day drinking and smoking pot and doing all that stuff. I, I didn't start work until probably two in the afternoon. And then we would go out to clubs at um, 9, 10, 11 at night, get home at four in the morning, go to bed at five. It wasn't a super productive life, but I had musicians coming over to my shop from all over the world. Um, top-notch, very well-known Afro-Cuban music musicians, and they taught me how to play congas, which I still do. Um, it was really a gift. It was a blessing. Um, but through those years of my 20s, I had the oddest relationships. One of my relationships that went on for, for years was with this, um, was with a cross-dresser, and I was totally not into the cross-dressing, but I tried to be because I still was the girlfriend who tried to provide what the boyfriend wanted. And it really wasn't fair to him or to me because he should have been with somebody with, with, for whom that was a joy, a, a pleasure, a fun thing. I was just being dutiful. Um, but I got into smoking cocaine. By this time now, I'm living up on Mountain Drive in Santa Barbara. 
I have a beautiful view out over the ocean and the islands, and I'm living in hell because I can't think about anything but trying to get more crack cocaine. We made it ourselves. We didn't use the stuff that set you on fire. We learned how to bake it with soda and stuff. But I remember that this, this insane life of the high you would get, the world would just be the most fabulous place. But of course, it sucks up every little bit of dopamine or serotonin or whatever is in your brain. And when you come down, the world is a gray, miserable, unbearable place. And after a while, I wasn't even really getting high when I did it, but I felt driven to do it. And that's when the insanity of the disease really kicked in. I wasn't getting relief. I was getting misery out of all my drugs and drinking, absolute misery. By this time I was a bartender, I would sleep with people to get drugs, creepy people that I they absolutely had no attraction to at all, but I would do that because I would do whatever it took to get what I wanted or needed. Um, and so what happened to me was not a burning bush. It was this gradual creeping. Remember, I knew about AA. And at this point, my mother, who was 54 years old, she was almost killed by a boyfriend. He was a psychiatric outpatient from a VA clinic down in Skid Row in LA. Tried to kill her and a light bulb went on for her. She thought, if I wanna live, I have to get sober again. She had periods of sobriety that she lost and got sober and lost it and got sober. She's one of the reasons I've stayed sober all this time because she described to me the misery of trying to come back after losing sobriety. She described it as trying to climb up a glass hill covered with Vaseline, and I never wanted to do that. So at this point, my mother is six months sober, and she's a different person in many ways. Um, and I spent a night, I had run out of cocaine. I remember I was trying to sleep, and the sheets felt really sharp on my skin. And just before dawn, there's these little birds that start to tweet. And if you are a cocaine addict type person, you dread the sound of those little tweety birds. You've run out of dope. The dawn is coming. The day is going to happen. You have no idea how you're going to face the day. It's just misery that you're facing. And I hear the little tweety birds. My heart sinks. And I look out the window. And I suppose this is my burning bush experience, nothing to do with a God. My neighbor, who's a young woman, who's not an addict or anything apparently, is out there greeting the sunrise with her arms outstretched in a pose of pure joy. And I thought to myself, I want that. I don't want this, the sharp sheets and the misery. I want that. And I spent the next few days trying to get through the day long enough without drinking that I could go to a meeting not smelling of booze. And I went to my first meeting. And at that first meeting, it was a speaker meeting in Santa Barbara. And the speaker was a woman named Alicia. And I never forget, she said in her, in her pitch, she said, the only thing I didn't do when I was drinking and using was to have, was to shoot up or have sex with animals. However, she said, if you have done that, you stick around because you will hear somebody say that they have done those things too. She said that she came in with all this shame. And as a woman, particularly, she had this particular shame 
and that her recovery had helped her to not have that shame anymore about who she was, what she had done. So I asked her to be my sponsor. She was a wonderful sponsor. Um, she, she marched me through the steps. She, she didn't worry or fuss about the God stuff. You know, what do you believe? Or she, she never told me I had to believe anything. She just kept me into action. When I would call her and cry about some boy that was breaking my heart, she would tell me to go to a meeting, find a woman who was hurting, take her out to coffee, listen to her problems and not talk about my problems. She marched me through my uh, inventory. I was having trouble getting started on it. I didn't know where to start. She said, it's not a biography, just this list of things that are bugging you. And um, she said, well, start with something that's current. Don't, don't think back, start with something that's current. And at that point, the cat that we had, my boyfriend at the time and I, came and rubbed up on my leg. And I remembered that we had stolen that cat. We were living in downtown Santa Barbara and that boyfriend had decided that this beautiful Abyssinian cat should be with him and not with whoever her owner was. So he took her and moved her to Summerland where his mother lived. And at one point, the poor woman whose cat it was came to our door looking for her cat and asking if neighbors had seen the cat. And I lied. And I said, we hadn't seen that cat. And I, I can't tell that story to this day without my heart breaking for this poor woman. I have no idea how to find her. So I had to make my amends in a different way. But this was part of my pattern of going along with whatever the boyfriend of the day wanted against all of my principles, against everything I believed in, against my moral, I had no moral compass. Um, I had to make my amends by taking the most exquisite good care of that cat when he left her with me and took off and moved to Colorado. Um, and I've, I've been adamant about being really, really caring to animals ever since, but I can't make it up to that, that particular woman. But that was, that, was, that was what broke the dam in my inventory. The, the, my inventory for me wasn't just a list of resentments. It was a list of regrets. The ways in which I had allowed my life to be directed by the, the going along to get along stuff that I had done. Um, so we went through all those steps. And by the time we got to the last three steps, she said, these are the living steps. They just pretty much incorporate everything in the first steps and and we didn't really work them together but I got to that 11th step sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God so when I got sober I had this beautiful yummy childlike trust in a God it wasn't Catholic because when my mother got divorced a priest said that she was going to go to hell because she remarried and that did it for the Catholic stuff for me but I had this yummy feeling of a God that was looking out for me, who, who took care of me and, and that I prayed to, and it worked. But I started to try to work that 11th step really seriously. I actually went to the church of my childhood, as it says in the book, and I went to mass and um, I prayed and I did all these things and I really leaned into it. And as I leaned into it, I fell right through and came to understand that I didn't believe in a deity. For me, 
that that just didn't make any sense, particularly when I went to church. That was really helpful because they're talking about um, our sins and 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 having and the stuff that they said was sinful. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, it just didn't make sense anymore. And I fell through and 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 lost this yummy childlike God thing that I had. It was actually kind of a loss because it was kind of sweet, but it was gone. And I think these days it's kind of ironic. It's almost as if um, if there were some sort of a, a, a God higher power, they decided that I was going to become agnostic or atheist so that I could be of more help to women who I now sponsor who have a lot of trouble with that God stuff. I can totally be there for them because <laughs> it's, it's where I am. But in my sobriety, I have really embrace the idea of a psychic change however you need to get to that psychic change for me it was a bunch of books and I still read I'm reading a couple books right now that uh, I've read a lot of Bill Wilson's later writings that he wrote in the 50s and 60s one of which says that he came to regret that people had turned the big book into a dogma he thought of the book and the program as a living breathing thing that would grow over time there's a reason he said more will be revealed he really believed that we were going to learn more about this stuff he never intended for it to become frozen in time in the way that it was written in the late 30s with the christianity and the and the uh misogyny and all that stuff that he wasn't even really aware of he thought it would grow over time which is why i love these kind of meetings to me this is the growing program um, but the psychic change thing still resonates for me. Even, even uh, <laughs> the Grateful Dead, I saw a documentary about it, and they were this jug band, and then they all took acid and became this fabulous other thing. They, they said that they, they felt connected to the universe in a way that they hadn't felt connected. And for me, that higher power voice is that unsuspected inner resource that they talk about in the appendix. And that makes so much sense to me. I used to think, why does God, why does God zap that person sober and not zap that other person sober? Well, God doesn't run around doing that stuff. We all have this inner resource, but some of us are so hurt and so damaged by some of the stuff we experience in life that we have trouble really accessing that inner resource. It's completely colored and damaged and sludged over with all of the hurt and the things that have happened to us. Sometimes we just have trouble, but sometimes like when I was looking at that woman on the hill with her arms outstretched, sometimes we can access that inner resource. That was, that was the psychic change that happened for me, but it was gradual over time. Some people like my mom get zapped. Some people it's gradual over time, but I have learned that for me in sobriety, that I have a lot of work to do. I can't just go to meetings. I have to find some way to dig deep and to look at these issues. How I deal with relationships when I was dating my husband. Now I got married. I never thought I would get married. I got married when I was 42 years old. But when we were dating, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, he said, uh, I think we need to take a break. He, was, he had a lot of fear about a relationship because of a bad previous marriage. And I did something completely different than what I would have done with all previous boyfriends, all previous boyfriends. I would have said, okay, fine. 
screw you. And I would have gone out and fooled around to show him and gone down this whole road of drama. And I said, no, I said, if we're going to have a relationship, we can duke it out in the trenches and figure it out and have the fights and do whatever work we got to do, or we could break up and move on to other people. And he was a little taken aback. And this was brand new for me. I spoke my truth. And I wasn't afraid of losing the relationship. It was either going to be something worthwhile or it wasn't. We didn't take a break. We've been married like almost 30 years. That site, But for me, it's been over time trying to learn. I'm reading a book now called Chatter. It talks about how that, that uh, inner dialogue is actually a good survival tool, but it can turn toxic on us. So it's not a bad thing. But, but it can turn bad on us. It's a survival too. That inner voice is something that in evolutionary terms, we all have to stay alive, to keep us, to keep us living. But I have to learn how to deal with it because my inner voice can turn toxic because of my pain of the past. I'm reading a book called Dopamine Nation about how we evolved in an in a, in a environment of scarcity and now we're being deluged with all this input and our brain doesn't even know how to handle it. And it's something to be cautious about, particularly for me as an alcoholic and an addict. Um, and I have to still stay in community with other alcoholics and addicts because that psychic change needs to keep growing over time. It can't get stale. It, it can actually go away. I still have that voice in my head that says, you know, the, the bead of moisture running down the side of a cold glass of beer on a hot day looks really good. I still have that voice. So I need to stay connected. Um, I think that's all I got, you guys. I don't know how long I went on. I've never been able to tell my story in such detail ever to anybody. Um, so thank you for having me. I don't know where you guys go from here, but I love you all.